Well, good morning to you. Uh, I've been out here like eight times, and you're going, if you're new, you're going, who is this dude, right? Uh, my name is Greg Pinkner, and I am the teaching pastor here at Fellowship Church. Uh, every su- uh, uh, the first Sunday of each month, we pause to look at the gospel uh, and remind ourselves of what Christianity is and how it impacts us. Uh, this summer, we took a long look at the, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And in that series, took the gospel and picked at its parts, if, you'll, if you understand the metaphor, things like grace, faith, atonement, the things that make up the gospel, we kind of pulled them apart. So this morning, uh, rather than take another look at a, at a gospel passage to, to see what the gospel is, I want to take a longer look at what the gospel does and how it impacts us and how it has to move us, all right? So we're gonna kind of be all over the Bible this morning, but uh, if you want a text to follow along and it'll kind of form the discussion, it's the skeleton of our discussion as it were, you're gonna wanna turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six. 1 Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. 1 Corinthians six, nine. All right, so the gospel impacts us in a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways that the gospel impacts us. Um, It impacts us constitutionally, morally, eternally. Um, There are ways in which the gospel impacts us that change our existence. Uh, It's in, for those philosophers in the room, it's an ontological shift. If you're not a philosopher in the room, just let that go. Don't think about it again, let it go, okay? It changes our existence, the very nature of our existence. Um, To give you an idea of what I mean by that, 2 Corinthians chapter five says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That is an existential shift. It's a total change in what we are, of who we are. And some of those impacts, the way the gospel impacts us, are these cosmic existential ways. And other ways the gospel impacts us are ways that we have to shift our worldview and our way of thinking. That because the gospel is is true and is what we have chosen, we have to rethink how we think sometimes and see the world differently because of the commitment we're trying to make to the gospel. There are ways in which we are automatically shifted because of the gospel. There's ways that we have to choose to shift because of the gospel. And I I believe those two things go hand in hand in many ways, but one of them happens automatically and one of them is a process. And so what I wanna talk to you about this morning is the process of allowing the gospel to shift us and, and things we have to do. So 1 Corinthians chapter six 9 through 11 is a gospel passage. It's a great gospel passage. Um, It is not one that is usually kind of dug into unless you're studying the book of Corinthians, which is what we're gonna do here in about a month. Uh, But because I wanted to pull a gospel passage out that shows us a gospel framework and how that gospel framework has to impact us, okay? So 1 Corinthians 6, 9. As a gospel passage it begins with the truth of our condemnation, right? Every good gospel passage begins with the truth of our condemnation. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, that's, you can't get plainer than that. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no, hey, well, everything's gonna be okay. It's all gonna work out. God's gonna, no. A gospel people have to realize the way in which the gospel writers clearly put this down over and over and over again. The righteous will, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The truth of condemnation comes out in every gospel passage. All right, so let me give you examples so you can see what I'm talking about here. If you've been at fellowship for any amount of time, you know there are two gospel passages that I zero in on in the teaching ministry. I'm gonna hit them over and over and over and over and over over again. My goal is by the time I retire, if you hear these references, you vomit just a little bit. Like you're like, I'm sick of it, I can't, okay. Okay, Romans 3, 21 through 26, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. These aren't the only gospel passages in the Bible. I pick them because they are of different types. Romans is a legal argument. Ephesians is a pastoral argument. I want you very familiar with both. Both of them have clear sections of the truth of condemnation. Start with Romans. Romans 3, 23, famous verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're like, well, that's, that's not as bad as the Corinthians one. I mean, the Corinthians one was like getting punched in the face every second. At least that's just one sentence. Well, that, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that in actuality, Paul has spent two and a half chapters proving this sentence. When you read this one sentence in Romans 3, it has two and a half chapters, really, of just dogpiling. Of when he says all, he doesn't just mean, well, all my neighbors. He means every person in every place, in every time, in every context, and proves it through the course of two and a half chapters. Like if you're sitting here going, but what about the guy? No, what about the, no, what about the, no, can I just, no, can I get, no, no, all. All means all, every place, every time, every person, zero exceptions. That weight of that argument is held in this one sentence. When he says all, he means all in every way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians Paul does not have that preamble. In the Ephesians chapter of the gospel text of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he hasn't spent a lot of time speaking about the truth of condemnation. So the Ephesians text digs in a little more detailed. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you break this passage down, you get the totality with which Paul is speaking. Number one, he points out, that we are dead in our trespasses in sins, dead to God, cut off from living with God. He points out that 
when we are dead in our sins, we are following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan, in case you're not interpreting. Dead in sins means being obedient to Satan. Being obedient to Satan. He says, and boy, if you want to get some people stirred up, teach this. I do it all the time. (laughs) That without Christ, we are, by nature, children of wrath. That being dead in sins means being obedient in type to Satan means being, by our very nature, children of wrath. And it means the way it plays out. What makes me so sad is that what I'm about to read to you is a description of our culture. It's not just part of a truth of condemnation passage. It is descriptive of how our culture lives, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. I mean, we call that our good, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, that we should, no desire should be unmet. Every desire should be attainable. I need you to see Paul laying this on and making sure there's no question as to what he's saying. And just like in the first Corinthians text, both those texts transition. Now watch this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, uh, adulterers, nor many who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor robbers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse is, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is a transition. Every gospel passage has truth and grace. Every gospel passage has truth and grace. Romans and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians, you're dead in your sins. It's following the spirit of the air. We're by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ even while we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen? First Corinthians text is no different. There is truth in condemnation and then there is grace. And every gospel text takes on that paradigm and it takes on that paradigm for a reason. It is that paradigm that Jesus came to, in, to uh, institute, to put forward. John puts it best in John chapter one, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
I mean, that's, that's the shorthand distilled version. The law is all truth. That's all it is, is truth. You either did the sin or you didn't. You're either condemned or you aren't. You either owe a sacrifice or you don't. It's just truth. But the gospel came to be truth and grace. And we do not have proper gospel if we don't have both. If we don't have both, we're not truly a gospel people. If we err too much on truth, we've cut the gospel in half. If we err too much on grace, we've cut the gospel in half. We haven't let it have its full run. Grace and truth is not just how we are to present the gospel. Grace and truth is how we are to do everything as a Jesus people. As a Jesus people, we are called to grace and truth as our existence and as how we act in the world. Grace and truth. So let me give you another passage. Uh, This one's from 2 Timothy. All right, so Paul, if 2 Timothy isn't Paul's last letter, it's close. I think it is his last. Uh, In it, he says, I'm being poured out. This is kind of it. You know, he, he kind of knows that, that they're about to come after him. And this is his last letter. He writes his most faithful lieutenant. And he kind of tells him, this is how you need to be in the world. All right? And it is applicable to us as it has ever been. This is what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. Now, first thing I want you to notice is this is not a gospel passage. This is a pastoral passage in which Paul is telling Timothy, this is how you are to live in the world. And yet, even this passage is grace and truth. You see them both? They're both grace and truth in this passage. Grace, be kind, don't be quarrelsome, be gentle, be patient. Truth. Right? He straight out says, they might come to the knowledge of the truth that they can be saved from the net they're stuck in. Grace and truth. And we are to be a people of that same way. So I want to take this and I want to put it into a couple of real world situations. You know, tomorrow's a holiday, so I won't be here to get the hate mail. And that's okay, right? But I'm going to go straight into it. Because I want you to see how grace and truth have to become who we are. Or we have to give up our fantasy of being a gospel people. Right? The way we interact in the world, it's critical that these things are how we act. act. And so many times it's not. So many times we err to one side or the other. Right? 
we err to one side or the other. Uh, we all are uh, oriented toward one or the other. We're either a truth person or a grace person. And it's very difficult to pull yourself back to being in the middle, right? Uh, I always joke about, I'm a truth person. My wife is a grace person. We balance each other out well. But in our basic ways, if the church service ends and you're in the pew crying and we walk by, my wife is gonna start crying, run over to you and just start hugging you. And I'm gonna go repent center and keep walking. And I might throw something at you to make sure you heard me, right? Um, so let me begin by confessing my sins in this passage, which is I don't tend toward gentleness and I don't tend toward not being quarrelsome. I want to repent of those things. I work very hard at trying to be gentle and not being quarrelsome. I fail a lot. Um, but if the Lord's servant has to be grace and truth, I have to challenge myself on grace a lot. But I know you grace people need the same challenge. Because without truth, you're not a gospel person. You're playing to your strengths and what makes you comfortable. So we have to be a people that orient ourselves toward these things. And so many times we're not. We want to throw bombs. We want to, we want to win, right? Or we want the people who are being loud to be quiet, right? The very first part of this passage, I think the Greek is a little muddled. So I'm going to give you a dynamic translation. A dynamic translation means take the original words and make them make sense in your time, right? So I just want you to pay attention to the first slide. Let's put it up here so we see the text. It says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So I think the Greek more plainly says this, don't argue on the internet, <laughs> especially not Twitter, but really at all. All right? If you are going to post an article that you go, ha ha, watch this, I'm gonna dominate them. It comes from a website that's probably not good, but I agree with it 100%, so it must be true. Watch this. Problem. Starting quarrels is not trying to be a gospel truth person. A person who is truthful in the gospel is working toward the repentance of the person they are presenting the truth for. They're not trying to win an argument. Winning an argument is dumb. The truth we present is so that a person can repent, that they can turn. In the same way, a person who really doesn't want to hurt someone's feelings by telling the truth, who just thinks, I just think we need to love everybody and everything's going to be okay. Wrong. There is no hope in that. The gospel truth requires us to present a truth that repentance is needed. These are errors in the opposite direction, but they have equal impact. We have to be a people that push grace into truth, not only into our own lives to remind ourselves of these, th these things, but into the world and how we react to the world and how we speak, not just at work, but everywhere. 
So I'm going to pick two things that have erupted in our culture in the last month. And I want to show you the way we've mostly reacted and how we need to be a more balanced grace and truth people. All right? First of all, Charlottesville. Now, if you are totally unfamiliar with the white nationalism rally that happened in Charlottesville and the erupting uh, place of racial rhetoric that has been driven up by these events, uh, I really don't have time to go into the whole thing. I imagine most people here are very aware of it. And when this happens, what you saw on, largely on the internet uh, and on Facebook and Twitter and all these places and even in conversations was the absolute truth. Racism is a sin before God. God will call into judgment any person who holds racism in their heart. They will be called into account for his holiness and his righteousness, and they will be condemned before God. If you think you can hold on to Christ and racism, you are sadly, deadly mistaken. There is no place in any Christian worldview for any kind of racism. But there's also mercy and grace for the sinner. And what I did not see, nor have I heard, are laments for these men's souls. God, please let them repent and turn. Please let these men see the truth and turn from their sins. I didn't see gentleness, just condemnation. You see, if we want to be a gospel people, we have to speak with the truth that racism is a horrible offense to God. And the truth that even the most racist man on the planet has an offer of mercy before him. If we are bound to an ideology that says, well, no, racism can't be repented from. God can't use a man who hates people of another race for any good. I would challenge you to check the author of every book I have referenced this morning, a man named Paul who hated Gentiles until one day God exposed him to the gospel and said, ha ha, guess who you get to go preach to? <laughs> A gospel people has to push for truth and grace. You see, either Jesus meant that, love your enemies and pray for them, or he didn't. In the same way this week, a biblical council of man, uh, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood put out a statement that is largely being called the Nashville Statement. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Nashville Statement, that's okay. We're not gonna go into the ins and outs of it. It is essentially a presentation of the ideas of biblical sexuality being one man, one woman in marriage uh, and sex contained inside the bounds of covenantal marriage. And it was like an explosion happened 
where so many Christian churches and organizations pushed back saying it was unkind and unloving. My pushback on this is when it comes to sexual sin, we have overcompensated to grace to tell people they are loved and accepted with very little truth. I want you to imagine for a second that the straight out condemnations of racism from the Charlottesville were about sexual immorality in our culture. Dear sexually immoral outside of marriage person, God hates your sin and you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Dear adulterer, God will condemn you and damn you for eternity if you do not repent and turn. If we are all grace, but no truth, we are not a gospel people. We aren't a Jesus people. We aren't following his example. To bend over backwards to show mercy is what we should do to every sinner. To bend over backwards to be truthful about the witness of God in our place and time is what we should do to every place the Lord has. And I realize this is so, this is so 30,000 foot view of these things. I, get, I understand how complicated these issues are in so many ways. And I also understand we are bent toward ease in these issues. To not speak the truth at times or to not be gracious at times. We must, because of the gospel, work harder. You're gonna mess up. I'm gonna mess up all the time. But we have to be a people that want the truth of the gospel spoken and the grace of the gospel put on display. Like every great gospel passage that says the truth is these sins will condemn you before God and God will act in wrath toward the racist and the immoral and the greedy and the liar. And God offers mercy and grace beyond the scope of your imagination for every single sinner. An offer of mercy is extended. And we can't flinch. And I know that these things are beyond the, the history of racism of, in America is wrapped up with a satanic violence streak that cannot be ignored and it shouldn't be brushed under the rug. It needs to be shouted out. Sin. Not just the racism, but the evil perpetrated in its name was against our God. And he will forgive every single person who bends their knee and confesses that sin. But if you turn towards sexual immorality and say, but that's not as bad. The abortion clinics in our country tell you there's a blood streak because of our sexual immorality. And yet God is going to extend mercy to every person who calls on the name of the Lord. Every one of us can be forgiven. You know why? Such were some of you. 
but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. We can speak truth and offer grace because that's what was done to us. I can't tell some sinner you're beyond scope because I look in my own heart and I see evil upon evil. Yet the truth of the gospel tells me the blood of Jesus covers me. To be a gospel people, we must speak the truth to our families, to our jobs, to name it, our culture. But we also have to extend grace and mercy to tell that is sin. It is an offense before God. God will, pardon me, but don't, damn every sinner. And yet, you are welcome here, brother or sister. In the name of the Lord our God, in the name of Jesus Christ, whose blood flowed to forgive, the gospel is greater. Will you stand and pray with me? As we close our time together, if you need prayer, some of our elders, their spouses will be here to pray with you. If you need prayer about anything going on in your world, be it work, health, anything, we'd love to pray with you. But especially this morning, if you wanna pray about what grace and truth means, we would love to pray with you. Let's pray together. Our Father in God, we praise you for the glories of a gospel that go beyond the surface and to the very core of who we are and change us forever and allow us to be a people that can be truthful and graceful, that can never accept wrongdoing and yet offer comfort to every wrongdoer. God, I pray that you will allow each one of us to to balance ourselves and do the best we can to be a people of grace and truth. Jesus on the cross condemns the sins of the men that put him there and yet calls for their forgiveness. God, let us be no different. Let us be like our Lord. We pray for grace and we pray for truth. Lord, we are in desperate, desperate need of both. It's in the name of our Lord we pray these things. Long may Jesus reign. Amen.